This Choir Cast podcast episode is brought to you by Maria Francesca French, author of the newly released book, Safer Than the Known Way, A Post-Christian Journey. It's an exploration of the promise of faith from a post-Christian perspective. What does it mean to speak beyond binaries of theism and atheism, conservative and liberal fact and fiction? Why might a new type of theological imagination, one that defies categories in comparison with the challenge actual deconstruction offers, be all that is next? Here you will find a compelling read of story and personal journey with strong scholarship and deep theology, significant and transformational thought that has lived in the ivory tower for too long but made accessible and resonant. Read along as the tables are turned, head towards a horizon with no line, and follow a compass that doesn't point north. Prepare to be beckoned by ghosts and travel a path unknown, because to go out into the elegant chaos of all that might be waiting for us after Christianity, while still engaging in meaningful faith, is safer than all that might be considered certain. If you have moved past traditional notions of God, beyond mechanisms of belief, and find yourself relentlessly curious about what might be next, this book is for you. This is more in my new book, Safer Than the Known Way, A Post-Christian Journey, out now. If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, and we are so glad that you are with us for this episode. We are continuing our series on what is the Bible, and uh, today we have a really fascinating conversation about um, what we're going to kind of call like the B-sides, you know, remixes, bonus tracks kind of stuff for the Bible. Uh, We'll get into that in just a second. But as always, we want to start off with some introductions. Uh, My name is Keith Giles. I am one of your co-hosts. I'm the author of the seven-part Jesus Un series of books about deconstruction and reconstruction. And the recently released Sola, yes, so much heresy. And the recently released Sola Mysterium, celebrating the beautiful uncertainty of everything. And I am so proud to say I am joined by my amazing co hosts, uh, Katie, Shonda, and sometimes Matt. Say hi. Hey, everyone. This is Katie Valentine. I am founder of the Metaphysical. I hadn't heard that one in a long time. Thank you. I- <laughs> I'm the founder of the Metaphysical uh, Christian Facebook community. I lost my train of thought yeah, there. I, I, I threw her off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm enamored with the title, with the with the B-side mixtape. And like I feel like we're listening for the hidden track. You know, That's like right. if I play this tape backward, what will the oh. satanic message be in these secret <laughs> lost texts? Happy to be here. Oh, right. I guess I'm the other person. Uh <laughs> I'm always used to following December. I'm very, very sad she's not here. Yeah, what's um, going on? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I am Shonda Jaw, author of, gosh, I've been in India for the past month, so I'd forgotten what I've written. Okay, what, what I am the author. <laughs> we go to Amazon look it up here. What is, let's see. I've done it once or twice. Uh, I am the author of Rebels, Despots, and Saints, The Ancestors Who Free Us and The Ancestors We Need to Free. And mm. I am excited about today's subject because I have, on one or two occasions, been described as a B-side. Matt, how about you? Not in, well, maybe in so many terms, but not exactly a B-side. Behind I, your back, I bet. Oh, I'm behind my back. I can only imagine what, what we've all been called. Uh, I am sometimes Matt. I am the author of the recently released The Wisdom of Hobbits. And I guess the cat's out of the bag. We're going to have to talk about something here. December isn't here. And it does relate 
to our topic today. What what is does anyone want to tell the people where December is and what she is up to? I've heard she's on a secret mission of transcribing, you know, lost texts. Like we found the super special um, lost text in in Nevada. Wow. I know. Yeah. (laughs) Crazy. And so it's so close to Utah. Like we're not sure what the relationship is here. Um, Are there like golden tablets? Are there these golden tablets maybe? Yeah. But like December's dedicated to finding out. And so I don't like, that's as much as I know. Like the rest is top secret. Does anyone else have more information? I just know that choir um, put her on a first class flight, um, flew her out on, there. We on put her boot, up in a really on nice boutique cave. air. Boutique air. There's a nice, <laughs> we found a really nice cave near the uh, discovery site. Um, so, yeah, she has a sleeping bag and a pillow. Do they have caves on Airbnb? Is that a verbal thing? <laughs> that would be glamping and transcribing. Clamping. <laughs> yes, clamping. <laughs> uh, can't wait to get to have her back. Yeah, yeah. Hear, hear the report. See how it went. Come back December, so we can <laughs> yes, talk please. about this. So we've done introductions now, which means that it is time for Katie's favorite bit—the thing that gets her day going. Stone thoughts. <laughs> Remember when Mark Driscoll said that he couldn't worship a guy he could beat up? Does he really not think? That he could not beat up Jesus after <laughs> Jesus had fasted for a damn month straight. You're not an alpha male if you can't beat up a guy who hasn't eaten in a fucking month. I'm just saying. Oh, oh man. <clears throat> that is... Shots wow. fired. Shots fired. No, but think about it. Think about it. Like Mark Driscoll said that he can't worship a guy he can't beat up, right? Yeah. So he's saying that he can't beat up a guy who hasn't eaten food in a month. Like that's that's beta, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, all these alpha males like to talk about how alpha they are, but they're really not. Yeah. Who couldn't beat up a, a skinny guy? He hasn't had a carb a in a month. <laughs> it should be really easy. Like, just yes, like a five-year-old over. child. A five-year-old child could take him down, probably. Yeah. <laughs> we get really sacrilegious. Like, there's the whole, you know, journey to the cross. Like, Jesus not at his physical best. Mm. Mm. Yeah. There either. Why would you want to? Why would you want to beat someone up? Well, yeah, I don't understand. Why is that the measure? I, yeah. I, can I beat the crap out of you? Well, then I can't worship you. Katie, I love that you're trying to engage Mark Driscoll's theology as if it is rational, reasonable, and <laughs> These well thought These are stone thoughts. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, the problem is I think we all agree with you. <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah, you don't have, you don't have to be stone for that one. You <laughs> just like made baby, a really great point. Like baby Jesus. Yeah, you can you can beat up baby Jesus. Not hard. <laughs> That's right. No, he, oh, came out, he came out like a, a ninja. Thing to do. <laughs> it was a very cruel thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what, what would Mark think about that? Like... Does, what, what does he think would happen? Like, does he think if, I, if he tried to beat up baby Jesus, like baby Jesus would telekinetically lift him off the ground and like baby you know, Yoda, like Yoda, like the little Grogu from Mandalorian. That would actually be really cool. And I actually believe that that probably is Mark Driscoll's theology. So yeah. 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 Is that I baby see. Jesus? Maybe Mark Driscoll's theology true. is all just stoned thoughts and we've been misunderstanding it all this time. Nah, because when you get stoned, you're not that angry and misogynistic. It, it kind of chills you the fuck out. Yeah, maybe he, he needs to get started. Instead, 
Can you work out a deal with Disney so we can have Grogu on a pillow? Oh, sure. Uh, Is um, he's not already Mark Briscoe out of? I think I think I think Disney's dealing with DeSantis a little too much to talk to us. Yeah, for real. Yeah, that's true. They are doing God's work. Goals, (laughs) life goals, life goals. Uh, Yes, getting good with Disney for heretic. There you go. I feel like anybody who's. I feel like anybody who saw your choir Facebook post about on April Fool's Day um, about who you were publishing next being Mark Driscoll, if anybody saw that post and didn't realize it was an April Fool's joke, oh. they must be very confused right now so as they're confused. listening to this conversation. That's right. Mad what are they taking it a different direction? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because here's the thing. We'll, we'll publish like progressive Christians and we'll yeah. publish atheists. Mm-hmm. But not Mark Driscoll. No. No, <laughs> no way. No, I no knew jerks. it was an April Fool's joke right away. <laughs> I figured everyone would understand, but I, I unless, like to I like to leave a little room for someone to get a little confused. Unless the title of the book was "I Was Wrong" and I'm very, very, very sorry. Now, I would, that st- is a book I would I still hesitate. I would still hesitate. <laughs> Fair. Oh uh, yeah. That's true. All right. Well, well Kate, if you're if, if you're enjoying these stone thoughts, you're in for luck because Mark Driscoll is our heretic of the week. <laughs> right? <laughs> right here, right now, we're going to take. No, but we we have someone that's actually. <laughs> We actually have someone who is super enjoyable uh, for you to listen to. It's Y'all true. are really, really going to enjoy uh, this Heretic of the Week coming at, coming with you with um, tons of smart things to say, lots of cool perspectives. So just hold your hats. And here is Patrick. It's the Heretic of the Week. What's going on? I am Dr. Patrick Reyes, and I am 1000% a heretic. Hi, Hi Patrick. Patrick. Wow. Katie's more of an expert at that than I am. Patrick, so excited that you're here. I have been a fan of yours for eons. Um, I'm so grateful for what you've been doing in terms of bringing La Palabra into the work of theological education. Um, So we're going to start off with the very basic question of why would someone call you a heretic? Such a good question. I mean, let me just start with where I'm positioned and what I do for a living, because that's what gets you called out as a heretic. So I work at the Forum for Theological Exploration. I'm Senior Director of Learning Design, where we help support the next generation of Christian pastoral leaders. These are folks who are going to go get a caller or theological educators, which is really my work, scholars of color who are you know, studying to teach in seminaries and teach that next generation. And uh, one of the things is to what qualifies me to be a heretic is I get to do lots of cool research and uh, push the boundaries of that. Um, that for me start at home. Uh, so one of the lovely conversations when I first got into the job is what does it mean to support the next generation of Christian leaders while married to a Jewish Apache woman raising Jewish children? Um, so I am full throated. I love my life. I love the kind of interreligious, intercultural, inner traditional practices. My grandmother was a Kudandera, so she taught me indigenous practices back as I was growing up. She's a lay Catholic who loved her church as well. And so living at the intersections of all these things, for those who tend to want to be a little more dogmatic um, about the rules and boundary lines of what it means to be Christian in life have got me labeled as a, as a, as a heretic. One of my favorite conversations in seminary was one of my classmates said, Pat, don't you care about orthodoxy? And I said, what is that? <laughs> I don't nice. even know what you're talking about. 
so, um, you know, it's just one of those lovely terms that I think people, uh, yeah, it's, it fits, it fits for a lot of reasons. Cause there's no, there's no purity here. I love that. Oh, no purity here sounds like the name of your next book, like the title of your next book. <laughs> or your best. band. Like that's right. The mantra of my life right there. No purity here. <laughs> <laughs> so Patrick, you you put a lot out there just now, just a lot of experiences and um and, and background. So we would love to, I would love to just know from start from the beginning, get to where you are now, you know, in two minutes or less, but tell us about your journey of how you got from um, this, this fascinating uh, background. And I'm especially curious about your spouse now too, um, to where you are now. Yeah. So I was raised in uh, Salinas, California, in the middle of California, surrounded by lettuce fields, um, Mexican, Latino, Catholic. Uh, so my religiosity was cultural. I mean, it's cultural practice at the home and um, has all the makings of uh, both and, even though I didn't know it growing up, the both and of our indigenous ancestry uh, to that space and to that uh, place. And um, and then the lay Catholic-ness of going to CCD and showing up on Sunday. I went to an all-boy Catholic school that was local, the Christian Brothers, who have a mandate to support um, their vocation is poverty, obedience, and supporting this next generation of young men to, to survive, uh, their order comes out of, um, Ireland, which is really cool for me, at least. And it saved my life. You know, a lot of poverty, gang violence. It was just, it was a Christians, Catholics in particular saved my life. And then living in that mix at home, you know, what does it mean to see all these different things? Uh, when I went to, to speed up to when I met my wife, who, uh, we met in seminary, she's a trained singer. She does beautiful, just, she's just, she's an amazing human. She's very talented and um, lucky that she said yes <laughs> to marry me. <laughs> and as we were going um, through to kind of get married, as we were figuring this stuff out, um, she has both a Jewish kind of religiosity and sense of cultural self. And she has this Mescalero Apache kind of uh, tradition culture uh, that's in her blood and who she is. And when we were trying to figure out what is it going to look like, two conversations stand out to me. One is when we were talking with the rabbi around getting uh, married, you know, they don't sanction interfaith marriage. That's not a thing that, you know, like they want to have a whole marriage thing, uh, marriage. As we're going through that counseling, he said, I feel like Catholics at least get it. And I go, I don't know what that means. And he said, well, you're cultural, right? Like you got like a cultural practice. You don't always have to believe what you believe in. I can get down with that. <laughs> so I had this moment where it was like, oh, there's a cultural piece to it, not just a religious belief, head belief or spirit belief thing that this is kind of baked into the way I live. And my wife and I found a really cool way of practicing together as a family with our kids that allow us to kind of live expansively that I don't think, you know, violates any of our faith commitments or even our own, you know, beliefs. Um, the second one is <laughs> my father-in-law uh, who uh, called me out and said, I think you're going to mess up your kids. <laughs> That's wow. we're going for a run. And uh, you know, we didn't have kids at the time. And I remember thinking, this is kind of what we're up against. If this is in the family, one that I'm glad that he's comfortable enough that we can have this conversation. And two, that this is kind of, breaking those molds and those boundary lines doesn't make sense to a lot of folks who are trying to find their tribe, trying to find their folks who are saying, this is the boundary that we have constructed around our faith and our religiosity. And for me to live into this fully and work it where I work, support the next generation of Christian pastoral leaders. Um, it can be challenging uh, for some, I, 
I love it. I love living at this intersection because I think that's where the most creative work, where the spirit actually moves. But um, yeah, it can be a challenge for a lot of people. So what's really interesting to me about that is, I mean, going back to that seminary question of don't you care about orthodoxy and your response being, what even is that? Now you're in this position where you're like shaping the next generation of spiritual leaders and presumably not leaning into any particular person's definition of orthodoxy. What's what's it like doing the work that you do? Who Do you find yourself getting to be in a position of opening people up to a bigger imagination about the sacred? Um, and how does that connect? Because the reason we know each other is a lot of our social justice work. How does it connect to that for you? Yeah, so my research um, prior to coming to FTE and, and even at FTE has really been focused on how people find meaning and purpose. And uh, because I'm seminary trained and because I did my PhD at a theological school or a theologically embedded school, like thinking about these questions of meaning and purpose, how people find it, for me, have always been centered to what I do. And my first study that I ever did for my dissertation was going back in the fields and asking folks who labor to put food on our table how do you find meaning and purpose in your lives? You know, what in your religious and spiritual lives give you meaning in this? And what I found in that study was eye-opening for me. I really imagined that it would be something like my grandma's house. Like, you know, maybe it was, you know, adoration of saints or, you know, some scriptural verse that they turned to or their church on Sunday or a pastor. And what I found in my study was when I asked, got, got real serious about asking more deeper questions about where they found meaning and purpose especially given the labor that they were doing, that's hard labor. Um, that's not even a full, you know, for the whole year, it's less than in poverty wages and um, not anything, but I think people opt into. And um, they said things like places they would go to are like soccer fields. Oh, why is soccer fields important? Well, that was because the one day where their children felt free, where they could do anything they wanted. Uh, libraries and community centers were more important than churches. Why? Because those library and community centers had practitioners who would not only do the healing work, but would tie them to social services that folks needed. And for me, that was an eye-opening thing. These are folks who profess faith, who said that Christianity was you know number one or two in their like the way that they structure their lives. And yet the spaces and the places and the and the practices they were engaged in were not on Sunday in the church. And for me, that really kind of shook my world because I had gone in, I'm a, I'm a trained theologian thinking I'm going to do a study in the church and, and um, all this will point back to it. And that's just not what I found. And so for me, that opening has allowed me, at least when I train up uh, leaders or thinking about that next generation of leaders, even the next generation of scholars, is where are we looking for the wisdom keepers, the traditional healers, the folks who are in our communities who are doing the work of, uh, you know, the, the I'm honestly for scripture, the, the women uh, that were accompanying um, folks in their pain and healing and suffering. So, yeah, for me, it's always been kind of outside of that traditional. There's plenty of people who do the traditional theological stuff in the church, and my studies have always pushed me outside. This brings me a huge amount of joy because my favorite, uh, one of my favorite spiritual spaces, you know that my father's from India, my mother's from Scotland, um, and the Iona community is a really, um, a really important one to me. George McLeod founded it, and when he opened up the spiritual community for all these like Scottish Presbyterian, you know, pastors who were doing all of their, you know, um, their very reformed theology, 
he opens up the abbey, this ancient abbey, before it's finished. And so all of the pastors arrive and the stonemasons are still working on the building. And they catch a little bit of what the pastors are talking about and they just start laughing and the pastors are like what what's going on and they're like do you think any of that matters to real people and so what i love is the origins of that community are very integrated with what about religion matters to workers right and so yeah for us to be engaging theology through the lens of what's relevant to real people i think is important one thing I just I want to add on that is the um, a lot of the folks that I'm at least the young adults who I get to work with they're really passionate about the big challenges that are in the world right now climate change racial justice um, they want to make a difference through their faith or through uh, leading in their faith and one of the things that I've found is you know going back to going back home to there's folks on the ground who are already doing that work and this next generation is hungry for a new way of imagining how to be a pastoral leader. It doesn't look like a church and pulpit only on Sundays. It really does look like things that my grandma did that I can highlight and provide some basis for. And I, I am just so inspired when you said this uh, piece on the ground, folks who are getting in the ground, I think that kind of move back towards our actual live community. Um, when you talk about farm workers or, you know, I've done stuff with gang intervention prevention, folks who are in crisis, um, you know, think about orthodoxy in, in crisis. Orthodoxy isn't something we debate about, you know, people need presence. Uh, they need the spirit. They need someone there. And as someone who's buried too many young people, who's accompanying too many folks in death, these are, these are moments of transition and rites of passage that require grounded attention. And I think that is being extended to, in you know, the, the issues I raise, let's say climate change, we're watching the death of the planet. And I think that kind of grounded attention of paying that mourning, lamenting what's happening to this planet, that is ministry and teaching a new generation about how to do that. Well, that, that, that means harking back on those indigenous practices. My grandma taught me and pulling those forward that weren't part of my theological training to bring that to, to augment what they might get in a formal theological setting or in their church. So Patrick, thank you so much for all of this. I, I'm finding it very stimulating. And I think one of the, it's both a truth and a myth, I think, that we hear a lot is, you know, the church is dying. It's just so corrupt. There's no, there's no life in it. And especially white evangelicals who are deconstructing, which is a lot of listeners of this podcast, y'all, we see you, we hear you, um, have this impression that the white church is the church. But what you've described is a very vibrant church um, from a perspective of a child of color and churches of color that you experienced growing up and that you currently work with. Um, and I think that the story of the church is dying is really a white myth because an old, outdated version of white evangelicalism is dying. Um, and I'm curious if you have any take on that, if I'm, if I'm on the money, if I'm way off the money, if I've said it in a grossly racist way and I need to be corrected. So I'll just toss all of that at you. No, I think you're right. Uh, one of the things that we're paying close attention to, or I'm paying close attention to as a researcher who's thinking about all of this is the way that the globe is shifting. Um, the, I mean, just numbers wise, the church is not dying. It's just moving south. The global, by, you know, everyone talks about 2040 in the U.S. will be a uh, majority minority country. But that 2040 is also the same year that the majority of Christians will be on the continent. 
So when you think about that as the church is dying, it's not, it's growing. It may not be growing the way that we want to. I mean, the theologies that are spreading aren't necessarily the ones that I would espouse or I would be teaching. Um, But there is this sort of um, tension right now where there is, Christianity is growing in places. The church is growing in places that are not here in ways that we imagine. I would also say that the church is growing here in new ways. And one of the things I've been really curious about watching as a non-evangelical watching this deconstruction uh, movement is that what I read in that is that there's a lot of energy and hunger to find something new. And in my work with young adults, I mean, my mind goes straight to how do you incentivize and build the capacity of the young adults or the adults who are thinking about what comes next after deconstruction, who are actually interested in the generative conversation, building the church that they still want to be a part of, or the community, the Christian community that they still want to be a part of. Yeah, having the Iona is a great example. Who wants to be building the space while worshiping in it at the same time? And I think that for me is super exciting because there wouldn't be that much energy if it, there wasn't something worth uh, building or having some construction around. And I just, I'm excited by it, honestly. I think it's uh, folks are asking the right questions. Now, on us who are a little bit further along, it does dip for, for, I mean, in age, like in stage, that it's on us to make sure those resources are put in the places with folks who are saying, okay, I've had enough of this thing. I want to build this. And we give them the capacity and the resources to be able to build whatever that is. Um, I, I take it as a, the world's on the line. We have to. Like it, I, I see no other way except to let this next generation kind of lead and make all the mistakes they want to make and have all the wins that they want to win to build the church that the world needs. Because um, we've, you know, for generations, have destroyed it. So, one of the things you had mentioned that I didn't know, Patrick, is I didn't. So we we have both done work with uh, gang intervention. I wonder if you have thoughts on what it means to be connecting with people that most of society has written off and whether you experienced hope, heartbreak, uh, spiritual connection in that work, if there's any way it's informed what you do today. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just tied to this uh, conversation, one of the, the things that I think is so important in that work is sticking with it. When you're working with folks who are, um, deeply traumatized by the violence that they see, that they witness, that they feel in their own body, um, the uh, lack of conditions for them to thrive, the poverty, the challenges that are kind of surrounding a vulnerable population um, like that. I, I, I don't think society and a lot of, I'll just say leaders, have a lot of capacity to sit with the patience that it takes to grow in that way, in, in the way that we are really patient with white leaders in the church who can mess up a million times, but because they've checked all the boxes, they've gone to seminary, they've led the institutions, they led the organizations. We're okay with them, you know, seeking repentance and finding new ways. Now I need to call any names out on here, but there's a couple of big names going through this right now. And I, I think about the folks that I grew up with and some of the most brilliant, talented, creative humans that if um, we're given the opportunities and the patience that people afforded me um, would be much more interesting guests for this podcast <laughs> um, because it is one of those things like this is this is lifetime work. This is soul work and heart work. And uh, I, it really does inform um, 
you know, how, how expansive we think about leadership for the church. I think um, this is the age of lay people. And um, we went through a clergy period and hopefully we're moving out of that and into the church of laity who are on the ground doing the work. And that may mean that it looks very, very different. The structures will look very, very different. The way we pay each other, the way we uh, honor those vocational commitments will look very different. What it means to pastor or to be called pastor will look different. Um, I don't have answers of what those look like. I'm just excited about how this next generation is leading and and hoping that our generation who's in leadership roles right now have the capacity and patience to sit with them as they're figuring that out and working through that. It's interesting because as I listen to you sharing that, I find myself thinking the reason I've stayed in the work of faith is because of the possibility of what you're describing. Uh, I think, I think it's actually really exciting. I think it's, pretty inspiring. And I think it's connecting with some of the ancient ways of being church uh, rather than abandoning historic ways of being church. That's right. Patrick, can you talk to us maybe a little bit about why you stay? Like what, what, what is it about the Jesus story that motivates you? <laughs> the joke I make with staff and partners is that if I ever walked away, my grandma would come out of heaven and whoop my ass. So um, you know, as a cultural <laughs> lay Catholic, you know, there are things baked into my bones that I can't shake. The things I love about the story, though, is that I really think there's some like just amazing leadership moments there. I, I was just talking to a friend today about the Luke and Jesus and this whole idea that Jesus comes back home and says, look, I, I figured this out. I, I'm going to lead you all. And the first question that gets asked is, aren't you Joseph's kid? Like, <laughs> like this, like very communal check mm -hmm. on his ego, which I just love. And what comes next is Jesus, you know, then building a crew saying, okay, I, I can't do this alone. I can't just preach in here. And then everyone says yes to this. I got to build a team that's, um, that's going to do this work. That's going to do this generational work. And, uh, so yeah, that, that Luke acts Jesus is just, I think a really interesting, um, leadership model about how we do this and how we do it in community and the challenges of community acts is a beautiful story of challenges community like you can have all these ideals and share you know have a shared economy and then that went sour quick <laughs> you know by chapter four is done so like you know there's a there's just some really beautiful kind of tensions that i think are in uh, the story i also think that there is um something for me about the the challenge of having a sacred text and a bunch of traditions and writings and histories all wrapped around it. And for me, you know, having been detribalized indigenous ancestry in my bones, like knowing that the church came here, like my people weren't churched before a colonial missional violent Christianity came and took over this land. That's a really fascinating thing for me to wrestle with that. What does it mean to try to recover some of this, text that's in baked into all the literature and all the storytelling that we do and kind of hold it accountable as well as a leader within this movement to say, you know, we have some pretty messed up histories that we have to account for. And if we're going to find and recover, you know, say an indigenous Jesus, for example, uh, that you can't just say that and then not do the hard work of saying, wow, look at all the ways that our churches misusing their investments, for example, or, um, that not accounting for the histories, the violent histories that we may have played out in our denominations or our, 
even our local churches and local spots. Um, there's a there's a one quick story that I think is emblematic of this. I was working with an institution that their foundation was built, a Christian institution that was built, foundation was built by slaves. They um, had built their endowment based on a slave economy. And when they went to go do kind of a reimagination of the physical project or the physical plant, uh, they did a survey and said you had a crack foundation. And um, so they did this whole thing. What would be the best thing for it? Culturally, it would have been to uh, break everything up, including the foundation, start over, reinvest in the right communities and all that stuff. This board voted saying that's too expensive. We should just, and they have plenty of money. We should just repair the foundation and build something really beautiful on top of it, kind of erasing over the violent colonial history. And, you know, being part of a, the community at the time, just thinking the extended community, I wasn't actually part of this institution, but, you know, neighboring community, thinking about what violence you have done to another generation of folks to not have kind of a moment of reconciliation, things that I think Jesus actually calls us to, um, to account for what we had really messed up. Um, and yeah, just the ways that that I think really calls me into a a leadership model that uh, allows me to wrestle with these things that should not go together at all. Um, yeah, I think that that's a beautiful leadership challenge. You know, there's beauty in the text and there's deep violence and challenges within our tradition and our people. So I'm really glad your abuela has not come back and, you know, beat your ass <laughs> or anything like that. <laughs> that, you, that you're safe from this. And right. I, what's really inspiring me, I think, is that um, you're, the, the way you're seeing the work that you're called to do is this kind of horizontal structure that we're called to move out and beyond where we were rather than the only vertical structure. So I think just so much of white evangelicalism is concentrated on like the relationship between God and the person, not that that's not important, but it becomes a scary relationship and not one that always calls people out to go do the hard work. It's all about the soul, but not about like their physical 3d lives. And what I, what I kind of sense and see you doing is like spreading that, that, that soul work calls you to be in community in radical ways. I, I would say not just community in this generation. One of the things that I, we work with a lot of um, young leaders who have found a call to serve the church and uh, leadership, at least my challenges that I've had in my own institution and in the literature is that leadership often, pastoral leadership especially, has been about uh, a single generation. I'm called to be a pastor. I believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Like it's a very much an I, God thing, you know, I thou. I mean, this is a this is a long tried and true kind of uh, model that I think is just bogus. <laughs> you know, as a ancestral being, it's not just driving out to community. I feel as a someone who is tied to my ancestors, um, that I have to think about where I'm placed five generations back. You know, often I introduce myself as, you know, sitting between five generations of Carmelita, five generations back, five generations forward, there'll be a Carmelita. So as I think about that, what is my role in holding the tension of these different times and time periods and holding myself accountable for it? I am not just responsible for the blessings and, um, the challenges of previous generations, the colonial tradition that I'm 
that I'm now part of leadership of and kind of wrestling with what that means in this moment as a leader. I also think about the responsibility I have for that five generations from now who will never know my name, who don't care if I believe in Jesus or not and expect me to build a world that they can thrive in. And the, for me, that's, that's the work that I would love to see more Christians get on board with, to see themselves as ancestors. I mean, with one of the things I get excited about is that in our tradition, we're going to talk about our tradition. Jesus talks to ancestors. It's yep. literally in there. People come back. They've been gone for hundreds of years, thousands of years, and they come back to have a conversation with them. Like this is an ancestral, multi-generational uh, tradition that we're a part of. And I don't know how we got to this place where we think about the churches in me or my relationship with God. This has always been an ancestral tradition. And that recovery, I think, will hold us to become better ancestors and hold ourselves accountable to the lives of faith that we're leading now, because it's actually not about me. It's about my great-great-grandma and that Carmelita, who's my great-great-granddaughter. Like these are these are the things that I I've just I love passing on to the next generation to help them think about that it's not that don't be the me generation mm. be a generation that truly becomes good ancestors and i think there's tons of potential for that of course do the community work i mean that's a but we've been talking all about that that's absolutely the thing but that community has to extend back to our ancestral lineage and the pit repair and the joys that come with that and then that deep work that comes for those generations that have yet to walk this planet you are a hundred percent speaking my language patrick that's I think you know what my next book's about. Um, so I am really excited to hear you talking about not just connecting to our ancestors, which is so important to talk about, especially for those of us whose uh, Christianity was colonized and who were told to reject the connections with our ancestors. So I love that you're bringing that up, but also recognizing what it means to be the ancestors our descendants need. I think that's a really important part of what it means to be people of faith in this moment. So I'm really, really grateful for that. I know part of, before I met you, I think I had read the book, No One Cries When We, Nobody Cries When We Die, and have been so grateful for your contributions. You get a chance to tell us where we can find you so that other people can benefit from all of your wisdom. So where can we find you? Yeah, two places. You can always uh, look up all my stuff. That's at patrickbreyes.com. That will have all the books, uh, podcasts, Sound Genuine podcasts that we have. It's got all kinds of cool information about what I'm up to. But I also encourage your listeners to head, especially their young adults, head on over to fteleaders.org, which is our organization that supports them. We have uh, retreats, resources, courses to help explore that uh that yeah, what your call is in the world. How do you find meaning and purpose as a uh, someone who's called to Christian pastoral leadership? And don't, you don't just have to be a pastor. I'll throw that out there too. And of course, we're expanding. What is uh, what does ministry look like? It looks like a lot of things in this world, and it's uh, definitely expanding. So yeah, patrickbrace.com or fteleaders.org. Fteleaders.org. So we'll have both of those links in the uh, show notes for sure, so people can find that easily. Yeah, definitely. And Patrick, why don't you um, just spell your last name for everyone? Yeah, R-E-Y-E-S. Perfect. Awesome. Cannot thank you enough. So grateful for what you are creating in the world. Thanks for taking the time to hang out with us and be a fellow heretic for a day. Same. Thanks for having thank me. You, if I lose my job over this, I'll just I'll <laughs> send y'all a note saying I'm looking for work. <laughs> oh, yeah. Fair. 
All right, we'll see you. So that was fantastic. I'm such a huge fan of Patrick's. I will take any opportunity I can to talk with him. Just super smart, super kind, and super radical in ways that I find really accessible. Yeah, that was really fun. And Patrick says these profound things with like clearly no effort. <laughs> it's also alarming. It's, it's annoying. It's annoying, <laughs> but enlightening at the same time. <laughs> I completely agree. Well, I'm sorry I wasn't on that one. I apologize. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know what you was going on. So we are engaging in a subject that I think is of a lot of interest to a whole bunch of people. This is maybe one of the sexier uh, episodes of this particular series. And I wanted to share, back when I was in seminary, my friend Gary made sure that everyone who lived in our house got to read this novel he had come across. It's called Gospel by Wilton Barnhart. And the reason he wanted us to read it is it was clearly based on one of our professors, this uh, former Catholic priest who had left you know, the priesthood in order to marry a nun and became this brilliant Bible scholar. And in the novel, not in real life, but in the novel, he steals the university's credit card to go off on a wild goose chase to try to find this Gnostic, not Gnostic text, but this hidden uh, heretofore non-accessible gospel, the gospel of Matthias. Some of you may remember that Matthias was the one who replaced Judas. And so the whole book goes back and forth between this wild, you know, chase by this uh, scholar with a stolen credit card and the imagined gospel of Matthias and what he learns about the other disciples and what he learns about Mary Magdalene. And the reason the book was so compelling, I think, was whenever we hear about these texts that we hadn't known about before, whenever there are these newly discovered sacred books that had been used by people centuries or thousands of years ago, there's this little sense of, oh, this might finally help me understand my relationship with the divine. This might be the key that unlocks my uh, heretofore lack of understanding. This might finally make it all make sense. And I feel like that's part of why all of these, you know, Nag Hammadi and the Gospel of Mary Magdalene when that was discovered, the Gospel of Judas when it was discovered, um, the Gnostic texts that we're going to talk about quite a bit. I feel like people have a lot um, a lot of hope that these texts are going to make it all make sense. And so that's why I'm really excited for us to have the conversation we're going to have today, even if maybe that's not what we learn is the case by the end of our conversation. Hmm. Yeah. So I know, go ahead, Matt. Oh, no, I was just, I, it, uh, I think Elaine Pagels alluded to that when we talked to her um, yeah. some episodes back. I don't remember exactly how far back, but it was kind of like, some of these texts were the, okay, let's do the deep dive now into who you are and what your relationship is with the divine. And maybe that was so when you approach some of them on the surface, you're like, what the hell is this bonkers shit? Yes. <laughs> but it's, yeah. it's because it's, it's so far down the road, so to speak, that you might understand it years and years later into your spiritual journey, but maybe not right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I do think that that's a great point, Shonda. I, I think, um, especially for <clears throat> a lot of the, like the Nakamadi 
gospels. And Nakamati was a like a time capsule of of yeah. um of just incredible and, and some of them lost texts. Um some of them texts we'd only heard about. Some of them, what's funny, we hadn't even heard about them until we discovered them in Nakamati. Like, oh, what's this? Some brand new thing. Mm-hmm. Um and so I think that was the excitement, right? To come up with something kind of new that had been buried for several hundred, you know, almost a thousand, maybe a thousand years, like a long time. Um, and yeah, I think that is like, you sort of like, could there, what, what sort of like hidden secret, um, you know, secret code, missing link kind of information or some, something that's going to make us go, ah, oh, okay. This, this makes more sense now. Um, now I understand God. <laughs> yeah. And, um, spoiler alert, most of them don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's, well, I think some of them think that that's what they're doing and maybe on some level they, they are providing a little bit more insight. Um, but you know, they're all, it is, it is a ragtag collection, especially in Nagamati. They're not, they're not all from the same sources. They're not all from the same viewpoint. Um, some of them are fascinating and interesting. Some are like completely incomprehensible and what the hell is this about? Um, but it's, we can't help, right. But to be <clears throat> fascinated by these kinds of things, you know, we, we still, I know hope that one day we're going to find like some lost letter of Paul or mm-hmm. um, some, or, or the rest of the gospel of Mary Magdalene, because Mm-hmm. the best juiciest part is what's missing. <laughs> it's like, and Jesus said to her, and then it's yeah. stops. You're like, what? It's like a cliffhanger at the end of a soap oh opera. Oh my gosh, it's, it's horrible. It's, yeah. it's God's cosmic joke. It is. <laughs> I mean, there's no, Someone yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> Seriously. You know, what I, what I really enjoy about um, these expansive texts is that they, they show the continued human imagination and our continued spiritual imagination mm-hmm. that early, you know, second century, third century, Christians, uh, for instance, weren't completely satisfied with what they had already. Yeah. So they continue to produce new things uh, using their own imagination. So I really enjoy the kind of co-creator part about these texts. And they're, um, to to make a term even more slippery, they're not gospel in the way that we think about like gospel being today. But there's they're something else. There's something unique in them. And so like, I don't take them as gospel anymore, probably than I take the four gospels that we actually call gospel. So now that I've muddied that word and made it unintelligible, um, you know, I enjoy all these mini gospels <laughs> and, and yeah. old Testament ones too, you know, we're, we're talking about both. Yeah. Yeah. We want, we want to make sure we mention that too, because a lot of times when we think about this, we tend to think of sort of the more um, Christian um, post first century kind of writings <clears throat> that again, a lot of them are in Nakamati, which I guess we should explain what that is. So the Nagamati yeah. discovery. Well, and do you mind if we just say, just to let folks know, we're going to be talking about a number of things that you may yes. have heard about before. We'll talk about the Gnostic texts. We'll talk about the Nagamati. Yeah. We'll talk about, or we'll talk about Nagamati. Sorry. We'll talk about the Apocrypha. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll talk about the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Judas. Wanted to let you know what you're going to be hearing about. And we'll explain a little bit about the context of each of those. Yeah. And Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. And Dead Sea yeah, Scrolls. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, thank you. Thank you. We should probably let them know where we're going. Uh, and hopefully we get there. I hope we get all of those places because we sometimes we don't make it all the way. It's true. <clears throat> um, but Nagamati, I'm personally really fascinated by mainly the Gospel of Thomas. I started studying it and, and running, I'm writing a commentary on that right now. And there's like a weekly subscription thing I'm doing every every Friday that comes out called um, The Inner Circle. And But as I'm going through Thomas, I, of course, I've been looking into Nagamati where, where it was found. And Nagamati was a fascinating discovery. So 
Um, we think it was probably buried around what, like fourth uh, century or something like that. Um, probably right after um, Athanasius wrote a letter basically telling people, Hey, these are the books we're going to, we're going to stick with. And, and so anything that isn't in this kind of uh, ballpark, let's not teach from this anymore. And what ended up happening was a lot of uh, seminaries, monasteries, churches, um, it mostly probably burned or destroyed um, these texts. And for whatever reason, um, the one there was one in Egypt uh, near Nagamadi, which is where this we call it that because that's where it was found. Um, instead, took this collection. I think it was like thirteen codices or something like that, and um, put them in a jar and sealed it and carried it out in the desert and buried it in the ground. And fast forward to 1945. This is what's so insane. That like from the like from the fourth century until 1945, these these all of these texts were like mm-hmm. buried in the ground. And it's it's a crazy story. We don't have to get into it. It's it's really an insane story with how it got discovered. And then yeah. But uh anyway, this these guys, these brothers discover it. Um their mom burns some of it to cook their food. Uh before they figure out that she's using it for kindling. And then she, they're like, hey, hey, mom, don't do that. Don't! <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, who knows? That was probably, ironically, the Mary stuff that's missing. Right. was like, you know, come on, lady. Anyway. <laughs> but anyway, it ends up getting transferred to different people who eventually it, it lands in the hands of a scholar who actually looks at it and reads it and says, oh, my gosh, I think we have an amazing discovery here. And it was... Um, I mean, this is where we basically got the um, a full text of the Gospel of Thomas. Um, we discovered the Gospel of Truth, which I personally really love, um, and a whole bunch of other, you know, extra canonical books um, that you probably never heard of: the Apocrypha of John, the Gospel of Philip. Of course, many people have heard of that. Um, Can I just say prayer. that you got you got to be pretty confident in your writing to call it the gospel of truth. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Is it capital yeah, here you go. <laughs> Exactly. It's not the gospel of Matthew, Mark or Luke no, or Thomas. This it's one, truth. This yeah. is the one. But <laughs> the gospel of truth is fascinating because it's very poetic. It's really beautiful. And in, in the gospel of truth, the way it describes God um, and our, and our, and talking about Shonda, you were saying like our, our relationship with the divine, it's really beautiful. There's some really beautiful passages. There's also some really wonky bonkers stuff in there too, but you know, I, I tend, I really like the, the kind of poetic, beautiful stuff about God and God's nature and our connection with God. That's really, really nice. Um, but there's again, all kinds of other stuff in it too. So it was a literal treasure trove, you know, of, um, of lost books. And among those were what we now call the Gnostic, some Gnostic texts, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So So, we had the gospel of Mary, the gospel of truth, the gospel of Philip, the gospel of Thomas. Is this the same Um, thing as the Dead Sea Scrolls or is this something Not at all. No, different. Very different. But ironically discovered in the same, uh, around the same time in 1945. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the Dead Sea, so I can, yeah, shed a little light on that because we have like the Christian kind of lost books and then we have Jewish ones too. So, uh, and the, and the Dead Sea Scrolls um, that are usually associated with Qumran, uh, they're they're buried in these tiny little tiny little clay jars, probably much like Nakamadi, and all date from like about the first century. And they have every book of the Old Testament, as we now call it, except for Esther. And we think because Esther does not mention the word God. And so whoever was transcribing these, we commonly say that it was the Essenes, but we don't really know. Um, that's a common assumption, mm-hmm. but not fact. Yeah. Um, and so, but they, they might've been disgruntled with the book of Esther, but it also includes a lot of other books 
that are not in the Old Testament, like the Damascus document. And then they're often given these titles that are like Q148, like they're given um, kind of abbreviations of uh, number, numbers and letters uh, for their for the designation. And most of the other books that are transcribed that are not in the Bible tend to be very apocalyptic, mm. um, tend to be about end times, tend to be about kind of like the Jews making it or not making it uh, at the at the end of a kind of fiery time. So it kind of very much reflects the situation of the Jews in those kind of early uh, early centuries. The Nag uh, the Nagamati the Dead Sea Scrolls. I've seen I've I've seen some in a, a museum exhibit, and they are amazing because they're like the size of your hand. Very oh, wow. fragmented. There's lots of holes in them. Um, they are still being translated. They're so delicate that they're, they're hard to remove, I think, from their container, and they're still being translated, and a lot of that is governed by current Israeli politics. Yeah, and well, you know, so. what's, that, that's what's interesting, too, about, like, the Gospel of Thomas. So, like, it was discovered in 1945, along with all the others in Nakamadi, but it wasn't translated into English until, like, 1965. It took 20 years for an English version to get, you know, to get translated and, and circulated. So, yeah, these things take a lot of time. And so I, yeah, I don't, I think there's probably still a lot of things still being uh, translated at the moment. Yeah, they take a bit of time and you have to have a lot of experts coming in. So you have to have experts in the end, just working with ancient documents to make sure they don't disintegrate and yeah. that they don't get destroyed. So like people who who can handle the material themselves, then you have to have experts come in. Like I couldn't do this. You have to have experts who can come in and actually read the damn thing because yeah. it's written in script that I'm not used to. So you have to have someone who actually knows the ancient script um, can can make a, um, a, a fair kind of from ancient into the kind of scripts that we'll use today. And then people who can translate it. And so like Coptic, you don't you just don't have as many people who know Coptic as who know Greek or Hebrew. Right. And so the, it, there's just a lot of like a lot of layers going going on there uh, for yeah. all of that. So now can I just say to you, I think in, in addition to kind of these sort of lost texts that were discovered in 1945 or thereabouts, um, and they're now still just being um, translated and stuff. In addition to those, there are still apocryphal books. There's even something like the Didache or the Shepherd of Hermas or some other texts. So we do have copies of those. Um, they weren't sort of lost or buried or burned right. or destroyed. We've or had those banished. throughout. Yeah. yeah, we've had those for a while. And, and, um, and kind of early on, there were Christians who, who did, you know, individually kind of consider them or treat them as if they were uh, scripture. So um, there's, there's also those as well. There's, so there's a lot of examples. I guess the funny thing is there's probably, there's more books that aren't in the Bible that are. <laughs> right. Many. Right? Yeah. <laughs> many. And let, yeah. let's define the word apocrypha for yes. a moment. Um, so this is, this is a word that, we use to describe like the whole, pardon me, canon of books that aren't in the canon, <laughs> but the whole set of books that like aren't in the canon. But the word actually means um, like to be revealed. Um, like it describes the thin veil, like the apocalypse, right? Like it describes yes. the hidden books. Uh, so it really means like hidden. And so it describes the books that are hidden. So for instance, the seven books that are in Catholic and Orthodox Old Testaments that are not in Protestant Old Testaments, Protestants call the Apocrypha, but for Catholics and Orthodox, they're like, well, no, these aren't hidden. These are part of our Bible. They're published in the Deuterocanon. Right. Right 
right? They're part of our canon. And so even like your tradition determines what you call these things too. Um, So, but we're like constantly adding books to the New Testament, not constantly, but like in 1945, we added a whole bunch of books to the Christian Apocrypha. Yeah. That were not, that were not there before. And uh, some of those gospels, some of the acts, like we have acts of the apostles. That's our only acts in the new Testament, but some of the other acts are wild and they're super Mm -hmm. fun. Yeah. I didn't, there's other acts. There's a lot. Yeah. There's like the acts of Peter, the acts of Andrew. And there's, um, and there's a bunch of revelations, right? There's a revelation of of Peter. Yeah. 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 Now what's fascinating too, is if, if anyone is interested in some of these things, um, I picked up a copy of this. There's something called the new new Testament, um, which actually takes, some, not all, of some of these texts and reinsert, I shouldn't say reinserts because they were never inserted, but inserts them into the New Testament. So you have John, you have Thomas, and you have uh, Philip and Mary, and then you've got the, um, yeah, but it's, you know what, it's really fascinating. It's it's almost, it almost is like a, a, a alternate multiverse version of like, this is what the New Testament could have looked like if things had worked out in a slightly different way. And if people have been a little more like open-minded about things like, oh yeah, put Thomas in there, put Philip in there, that's, you know. Um, and it's really interesting to read those texts alongside the other New Testament documents too. So if you're just curious about that and you, you know, it's it's uh, it's a really good read and uh, I've enjoyed looking through See, it. See, I would rather have that. I would rather, this is where just I'm at. I mean, I'm post-Christian anyway, but if I was still in the, in the I give a shit mode, um, <laughs> I, I would I would want Christians to like I mean I we can we can elevate the four gospels above in terms of like accuracy if we want but I th- I think we should still like temper that with like every writer has a theological axe to grind or point to make it's not like a journalistic account of Jesus' life and we know that because they're all different and they're all like trying to prove a point I think right but yeah. I and, and so I think we should take down our like oh this is 100% true because it's in the Bible, but also elevate these other texts a little bit to say, well, maybe some of these add a broader and more robust picture of who Jesus really was. And it might, and they probably have an axe to grind too. And I guarantee the writer of all these, you know, Gnostic gospels has a point to make, uh, yeah, but just I, like, I, just like the four gospels have a point to make. So why, why, why not expand the canon to include those? And then we can have like our hierarchy within that, but at least include them. Yeah, so well, I like that Bible I, that, that you were just talking about. Yeah, so so what I would say is what what I think it's not maybe it may or may not be necessarily some revelation of God or Christ or something like that. Maybe it is. Maybe some of them are. Um, but I think what it is what it is definitely, and this is why I, I like this idea of sort of inserting some of these other texts in in with the New Testament, is what what it is showing you is that there were a variety of Christianities. In, in those early centuries and that there wasn't a monolithic, oh no, there's only this view. Like there were lots of Christians who did read these different texts and did consider them something they would lay alongside, you know, Mark or Luke or, or Galatians or something. And so um, I guess what it, what it helps for me is to, to look at it in the sense of like, yeah, there was a time when it wasn't so clear. Right. And depending on where you were at, what region you were at, what bishop you were sitting under, what what group of Christians you were associated with, um, they would all call themselves Christians, but they wouldn't necessarily all have agreement on this text or that text. And so there were um, 
Yeah, so so for me, that's what's helpful. I think is just to get a, a a picture of the the fact that it wasn't monolithic, and there were a lot of different ideas going around. Um, as we said, like some people would have included Didache, the Didache or Shepherd of Hermas, but they would have they would have rejected uh, Hebrews or James or whatever. You know, and we talked about that in some previous episodes. Well, and so I think that this raises a really important point. Um, I don't know about in your circles, but um, in in a lot of very progressive Christian circles, there are a lot of people who have staked a very significant claim on this notion that the Gnostic texts were kept away from us because the oh. man didn't want us to know. <laughs> um, and so I want to be careful that we don't fall into that trap. Um, I remember when I first learned about the Gnostic texts, I was in, you know, I was freshman in college and I was lucky enough to go to a fairly progressive, well, a moderate church, let's say uh, a moderate church with a very well-educated pastor. And I was like, so help me understand this stuff. Uh, wh what do I do with these texts? And I'm not saying you all need to agree with this. I'm not saying I do, but he said something that I did find helpful. He's like, so listen, it's really important that we've discovered them. It's really important to take a moment to read them and reflect on them and put them in the context of uh, their social location. And he's like, and also, there's a reason some of them didn't make the cut, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's worth naming because I, we, this show does such a good job of saying, let's really interrogate how we read the scripture. Let's wrestle with what we're bringing to it and imposing on it. Let's make sure we don't fall into uh, the trap that so many um people functioning out of a white supremacist, Christian supremacist worldview impose on it. I want to make sure we don't make the same mistake with the Gnostics. And I feel like a lot of progressives try to act as if the Gnostic texts solve all of our problems and they've been withheld from us, like I said, because the man didn't want us to know, which is very much the same thing that happens with all of the, you know, health and wellness scams that are out there. You know, there's this great secret for you to lose 180 pounds this week, but the man doesn't want you to know about it. Um, buy my supplement. So I want to be careful that we don't do that with... I've got uh, a $300 that. oil that you drop on your tongue yeah, once a week. Exactly! Right. Well, the, but it's also that and that's a great point, Shonda. Uh, but it's also that th there is no, again, monolithic the Gnostics. Mm -hmm. So th are there a whole bunch of books that weren't, you know, that were excluded or were not? Yes. But they're not even all the same, right? And so they're, they're all, you, you would have to kind of like approach them one at a time from different levels of like, um, what are the chances that this is, does have any bearing on, is this what it says it is? Is it, mm -hmm. is there what, if there is any value to what's in it, what is it? Like, for example, the gospel of truth, it's not trying to say Jesus told me this. It's just a, it's like some, some writer telling you their ideas of their understanding of God. Well, for that, it's valuable because it's what that person thought about God. And some of those ideas are, you might find them compelling. Um, but you might read like the infancy gospel of Thomas and, and, you know, don't take that as seriously because it's, it's so like, cute though. it's, it's fan fiction. It's like, yeah. Hey, what would Jesus doing in the missing years? Well, what if he was like, you know, creating birds out of clay and killing the, 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 the town bully or the kid he didn't like or whatever. Um, you know what I mean? So like, okay, this is not, we're not going to take that on the same level. Um, cause like for me, I'm, I know I'm super biased here, but like, I really do think that Thomas, because the gospel of Thomas is just a collection of the sayings of Jesus. So in that sense, it's not truly a gospel. 
Um, it doesn't have anything about the the uh, the atonement, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the second coming. It, it has it's no there's no narrative. It's not like oh then Jesus went mm-hmm. here and talked to that person. There's no it's literally and Jesus said and Jesus said and Jesus said and Jesus said. Half of those sayings are in the Gospels that we do accept, um, and then the other half of those sayings are you know are are novel. They're new, and so um, I don't know. I I take Thomas a little more seriously than I would some of the other gospels for, for no other reason than that. It's not, it seems like it's not trying to tell a new or different story. It's just trying to collect. These are some things that Jesus said. Well, and you're, you're definitely naming something really important, which is the Gnostic texts aren't all identical to each yeah. other, but there's a reason that that category categorical term is used. Uh, I'm going to defer to you all um, to explain a little bit more why they're called the Gnostic texts, because I think yeah. that's important to name. Yeah. It's sort of, yeah, Gnostics, Gnostics are sort of sexy, right? And um, I want to just maybe like probe or, or nuance um, a couple of things that I, that uh, fascinating things that were said. So I, I totally agree that these are um, showing that there were multifaceted Christianities. However, they seem to be very localized, right? Like, the like the Gnostic ish community in Egypt that produced the Nag Hammadi text, that same community doesn't exist in like Italy or Spain or other, you know, like other places in North Africa. So I, I think one of the, one of the gifts of these discoveries from, and uh, Qumran was 1946, not, not, not 1945. I was off by year. Oh, okay. Um, but the forties were like this fabulous year for discoveries of ancient texts. Um, but they, they show us that people are practicing their faith in different ways, in different locations. And I think that's really valuable because we want to sort of like the um, evangelical missionary zeal tries to make Christianity the same everywhere with really devastating consequences. And so I love that we can honor that there were local ways to, to practice spirituality and to practice faith. Um, for the Gnostics in particular, I can just give my kind of two cents. And there's, there's even people now who say we really shouldn't use that word. Mm. Yeah. That we, we shouldn't have a category of Gnostic, but for what it's worth, um, mm-hmm. Gnostic, Gnosticism was a philosophy uh, of which many different peoples or religions could adhere, Christianity being one of them. So it wasn't mm-hmm. only Christian. There were other kinds of Gnostics. Right. Um, they The word comes from the Greek word for knowledge, which is gnosis. Uh, you yep. see that word a lot in the Gospel of John. Uh, for instance, but John is not technically a Gnostic, uh, a Gnostic text. And this is really a second century phenomena. So a little bit after the four Gospels that we've got uh, in, a, in the current canon. Can we call and him proto-Gnostic, though? He's proto-Gnostic. He really is. Yeah. He really he is. is. And he so is. is Colossians and Ephesians. There's a lot yeah, of... Yeah, to some extent. Kind of yeah. I think High Christology that's yeah. doesn't show up. And so, yeah, so Gnosticism tends to focus on, uh, within the Christian context, tends to focus on spirit. It tends to focus on um, teachings and on knowledge, especially secret knowledge. And so it's that... Um, for for like for the masses, we have one level of knowledge, but for the, those who are kind of initiated, like some of the disciples uh, in the stories, they get secret knowledge that like not everyone is ready to hear or to understand. And it's a kind of wisdom. Um, it's kind of wisdom. It's a kind of truth, a uh, connection with the eternal that some people have. And then they, they um, initiate might be too strong of a word, but they bring others into this knowledge when they reach a certain level of spiritual maturity. 
Um, and so in the Gnostic text, you see this because it'll say, now I'm going to give you the secret words, and then there'll be gobbledygook for lines and lines and lines, and sometimes pages and pages and pages, because they're not going to write down the secret information. So ironically, and Elaine Pagos did a great job uh, talking about this in the interview with her. Um, ironically, the, um, the secret knowledge we never really get to know. It's sort of hinted at, it's sort of alluded to in the text that we do have, but they're not going to write it for, for other reasons. They're not going to write it down. Um, some Gnostic texts, some Gnosticism tends to be very harsh about the body. They some yeah. some Gnostics saw the body as the location of all corruption and all evil. Um, and this could take two different forms. You would have some Gnostics in the ancient world that became very aesthetic, uh, very aesthetic, very um watch what they ate, you know, no sex, like all these really rigid rules. You had other Gnostics who were like, ah, fuck it all. We can't win anyway, so let's have an orgy. The body yeah. doesn't matter, so it's we can do whatever we want. Let's just do what we want. Right. And, and then a whole bunch of people in between. So it's I like not those a Gnostics. The party yeah, Gnostics. Right? Those are the party Gnostics. Oh, they would get on my nerves too. I oh, need yeah. the moderates. I'm such a moderate. Yeah. <laughs> I need yeah. the, well, the occasional glass of wine. But and like, I think this is really important because in, in reading the Gnostic texts, I feel like a lot of people are looking for a solution to what is harmful and oppressive about Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. And there are things about the some of the Gnostic texts that are also harmful and oppressive. Yeah. Right. I mean, like right. one of the last lines in the Gospel of Thomas talks about how all women will become men because like that's the higher spiritual state. Drives yeah. me crazy. Yeah. You know, like yeah. right. So yeah. are you gonna comment, are you gonna comment on that one? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would love to comment on that. One. Yes, go for it. Go for it, Matt. Um, what well, is your comment? <laughs> No, I'm not the one writing writing articles on Thomas. <laughs> no, no, no. I I do have a response to that because I think um, there's there's a prior saying in Thomas. I don't remember off the top of my head what it is, where Jesus is talking about how when you make the male female and you make the female male and you make the top, you make the inside like the outside and the outside like the inside, this is when you know you see the kingdom. So I think I think you have to take that final statement in context because it's actually in a it's part of a conversation. Um, the one you were, you just referred to, the very last saying, where Jesus is having a conversation with Peter, and Peter is rebuking Mary, and he's like, he tells Jesus, "Hey, could you just shut her up? You know, this why is this woman even something like even how the woman's not fit to live or something?" And then Jesus' response is, "You know, I will, you know, Peter, don't worry, I will make her male so that she will she can see the kingdom or something like that." And um, but I, to me, that's in that's in the context of the prior saying where he's already established that. Again, because one of the, the core ideas in Thomas is that the, there's this illusion of separation, that there is no separation between us and God or for, between us and one another. And so Jesus is always saying in Thomas, you know, you have to make the, the inside like the outside, the outside like the inside, the male, the male like the female, the female like the male. Um, in other words, like it's, it's dissolving those barriers and those borders, right? Just like Paul says, there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free. We're all one in Christ. So it's it's another way of saying the same thing. And so I the way I read that final statement is Jesus basically reminding Peter that, remember what I told you, right? It, so it's, yes, I, I'll make her male, but Peter, I'm going to make you female. Like, in other words, I'm going to erase these, Does it say that? these labels. No, it doesn't. But I think it's implied in the context of the prior It, it doesn't make and, a great tweet, though. It doesn't make a great tweet. It does not make no, a great tweet. I wouldn't apologetic. put it on my bumper sticker. Well, I wouldn't put it on a bumper so sticker. The thing to me is, if Thomas were part of the official canon, 
and had been from the beginning. Yeah. People don't bother to do the nuance. Oh, I know that. We, oh, right? So yeah. this would have been devastating. It would have been devastating. More, more de- like, it's not like there's not already enough misogyny. I was going to say, there's more plenty. devastating than Timothy but or like, that's very, <laughs> But that's very direct, and it comes from the mouth of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that would have been horrific. Yeah. So I'm glad, I'm glad Thomas is not in the canon for that reason. I, that would have made my life worse. Right. I like yeah, the Gospel I mean, of Thomas. I don't yeah. disagree with your interpretation there, but yeah. like people don't always get there on a right. surface reading. No, no, totally. You know, totally. Well, that's how I feel about the God, about the Revelation. Circle. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, that, exactly. It's, it's, it's fine if you understand it, but the problem is most people don't understand it and they completely, yeah. And then they can make a lot of money not understanding it. Oh, so much money not understanding it. Yes, for for everybody else. Um, Yeah, I would also say, like, going back to what you were saying before about the Gnostics, too, and and that was a wonderful uh, overview of Gnosticism. Um, But I agree with Elaine Pagels and some other scholars, too, that that's the reason why they they, they feel like there are some texts, specifically in the Nag Hammadi, that don't fit in that, that classical Gnostic category. Because Thomas and I think Mary, um, and I don't know about the Gospel of Philip, but there's there's a handful of of texts that are called Gnostics. They're just kind of lumped in with them, uh, with all those rest of those texts that are not anti-body. They don't deny. They don't. They don't have this problem with the flesh. They don't. Um, so they don't. They don't check all those boxes that a lot of the other Gnostic texts do. That do go much farther in extremes. Um, and so for that reason, yeah, I, I kind of, I don't like lumping Thomas in with, and, and others with some of these Gnostics because they are very different. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's not a, yeah, it's not a one size fits all category. And that's why a lot of people are arguing we shouldn't have the category. Yeah. Or just make up we another should. category. Like, right. let's call, because those, there are texts that I would say are genuinely, those are Gnostics, right? Yep. That is a Gnostic text. Um, but then to say like, may, maybe create some other category for these are the other ones and they're not that they're something different, but no one's done that yet that I know of anyway. And I just want to mention very briefly, if anybody wants to super nerd out on this stuff, there's tons of great resources. I'm sure we'll link to some of them, but sure. I do want to mention y'all had, uh, Bart Ehrman was a uh, heretic of the week and he does a phenomenal uh, course in that Great Courses series yes. on early Christian writings, and he does a really good, here's what's interesting about the Gnostics, here's what's potentially dangerous, in yeah. the same way that he does with the canonical texts, right? And so I just wanted to give that course a shout out in, in case anybody wants to really nerd out on this particular yeah, subject. Yeah, actually, I've seen that, and it is very good. And and you just reminded me, I could because earlier I couldn't think of what it was called, the Great Courses series, yes. Mm-hmm. Another mm-hmm. friend of mine, his name is David Brocky. Uh, he also has a Great Course series on this uh, on the whole Nagamati thing. And he covers, I think he covers um, Thomas, Philip, Mary, uh, Valentinus, and some other things, as well as a broad overview. So that one's also really good. And you can find those on YouTube for like for free. Mm-hmm. Used to charge like a lot of money for those things. Yeah, yeah. Um, but now they're well, all free on YouTube. My very first New Testament um, textbook ever was Bart Ehrman's oh, New Testament nice. and Early Christian Writings. I can yep. picture it, blue cover. Yeah, I've heard a and rumor. The Maroon Companion. Yeah, yeah. Like, I've like, heard a rumor he might be coming back though. He yeah, might return to the heretic chair. Let's see. Like, I'm excited about uh, that. Yeah, that was way back in 1996 for me. But um, so it, it seems like one of the kind of cautionary, maybe cautionary tale or a um, an uplifting challenge that's that's coming here is that these are all available. 
right? We're not, um, they're, they're not as secret as people think. I also, I also hear often like the Vatican, there's some sort of like oh, anti-Catholicism, like the Vatican has all this secret stuff that they're not giving us. Y'all probably right. not, probably not. Um, so, but that we, we, we don't take anything at face value, right? These all require thoughtfulness. They all require the deep dive. They all require the deep read. And so there's no extra canonical text is going to be the solution for understanding who Jesus was. And actually that has to come from the inside hmm. in my, in my experience. Well, um, and, and, texts and don't also, do that for us. They shine a light on where we need to go. Yeah. And, and, but you would also put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in that category too, right? Yeah, yeah, like all all of these ancient texts exactly. are mm-hmm. are helping illuminate what we need to discover within ourselves. I agree, and 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 piquing our curiosity too. Like, I mean, as you all know, I I love my historical digging and getting deep into words and all of that. But um, when I do that, it may shed light. You know, I think I think I've shed light on what First Corinthians seven means. Does that shine light on who Jesus is? Barely. Yeah. No, does that does that dictate who Jesus is to me? Not at all. I just think it's fun. Yeah. So what's uh, you know, very what were people doing? What's very ironic, Katie, is what you just described a second ago as these texts can sort of help us a little bit, maybe give us some ideas or inform us, but but what's really important is our experience. That's gnosis. I was about to say <laughs> that's exactly that totally. You know who Why would agree you? with you on that? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, all yeah. the Gnostics. <laughs> yeah. So we're back no, to it is. it is. Yeah. yeah. We're back to experience, which I personally I'm I'm a big deal on that. I mean, I I, I do agree. I think that's actually one of the things I'm uh, that bugs me about evangelical Christians is that they, on the one hand, they they almost deify the Bible. Um, but then they say don't have those. an experience. Yeah. They don't have the, they don't want the nose. In fact, they're afraid of the experience, right? It's no, it's just everything you need to know about Jesus. You're going to read about it right here. It's like, you know, it's like right there. And it's like, well, yeah, in a way, I guess, but you know, there is this experiential part of connecting with the divine and it's real odd to me that they're so against that. So, well, and, yeah. and even to their own, I guess, ignorance, I would say, um, is that, they can't remove their reading of the text from their experience. So it may be, it may be below the, below the conscious most of the time, but they're still bringing their direct experiences, which I believe is the start of all our epistemology. They're bringing that into the text, whether they like it or not, and they can never get away from it. Yeah. Yeah, A white U S reading of the text is very much a white male U S reading of the text is very much a part of it. Oh yeah. And we've talked about it on this show. Like Mm -hmm. in theology, when we say theology, it's really white male theology. We we should classify theology like that. Like we do black liberation theology Mm -hmm. or like we do womanist theology. Like if we want to add those class and, and I think we should, we should add, well, this is not theology. This is white male theology. Let's be real. White male European yeah. theology. <laughs> right, right. But, but, you know, ironically, evangelicalism does value experience of like salvation, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. commitment, of, mm-hmm. of dedicating your life yeah, to Christ, of the yeah. altar call, yeah. right? But it's, that's tied, yeah, it is tied to a particular um, interpretive stance. Yeah, absolutely. No, I had a really, yeah. you reminded me, Matt, I had a really, I had a really funny conversation with a guy one time. I was speaking at this conference in Seattle <clears throat> and I presented the whole, my, my whole presentation was on this idea of the, the Bible and um, my approach to the Jesus centric way of approaching the Bible. And uh, man, dude, I thought they were going to burn me at the stake. Uh, if my friend Chuck McKnight hadn't been there, I think they would have, they would have taken me out back. Um, 
So thank you, Chuck, for saving my life. But um, I had this conversation with one of the guys after one of the other presenters afterwards. And I was emphasizing this need for experience. Like to me, that's even what the scriptures are saying. Jesus is saying, my sheep hear my voice. So we are capable of connecting with them, right? You know, at first John, it says we, we all have this anointing that comes from God and, and uh, therefore we, no one needs to teach us because we can all know. Even the new, the new covenant is all about God saying, everyone will know me. No one will say to their neighbor, know the Lord because they, they can all know me, right? And it's just this direct connection possibility with God. And so I'm telling, I'm, I'm emphasizing all of that. And then he said, I've never had an experience of God like that. The only way I've ever encountered um, God is through the scriptures. And so I was like, I had this moment of like clarity or something. I was like, so what you're telling me is your experience that you have only experienced God through the scriptures is the reason why you reject what I'm talking about in my experience. So in other words, like it was still based on experience. That's what I thought was so interesting. He was basing his 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 uh, conviction that no, the only way we can we can connect with God is by reading the Bible, but that was based on his experience. I just thought, that was kind of odd. Like, but he he couldn't get it. He was kind of like, no, 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 that's that's not what I mean. But yeah, but no, it is what you mean. Your experience is that's your only experience. Hmm. Fascinating. Well, any any final last last thoughts before we? Um, Ooh. Are we know. at the end? I didn't miss. I, the I time. know. I I did too. I was like, this is such a good conversation. Such a good conversation. I like- really would hate for us not to talk about the Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, even if it's very quickly. Um, just because they're or so or we or so we make exciting. a part two. Oh, make a part two. I mean, yeah, let's do, do part two and genius because those I, deserve a lot of attention. And Enoch. I think we have enough here for part either. two. So, yeah, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and and they thems and he's and what sheroes and theros and heroes. What do you say, yes. Shonda? Everyone listening, we are just going to add another another part to this. Le- this series just got one episode longer because Bonus. we are, we are yeah, like an I hour and something into that. it, and we barely yeah. even scratched the surface. We barely got we we didn't even get in the cave to look for the the, the scrolls yet. <laughs> I was afraid keep, this keep was writing, December. Keep writing. Yeah. Yes. Keep, yeah. <laughs> no, we actually de- December. We want you on part two. So hurry oh, up. Yeah, come back. back here. Well, so everyone's homework between now and then: read the Gospel of Judas. Take it. 15 minutes, read the gospel of Mary, take you about 15 minutes, That's then right. go read all the Enoch's. It'll take you about a day. <laughs> Good like grief. Straight, like 24 hours Ooh. straight. No wonder people always said you were a hard professor. They're long. Yeah. You get, you'll get bored. Nah, if you want to read Enoch, read the first like 40 chapters, which is not yes. as long as it sounds. They're really short of first Enoch. But Enoch's cool. We're going to talk about it next it's time. Good. But yeah, that's where you get like the fall of Satan, right? You get all that kind yep. of stuff. All kinds of stuff. Get yeah. The good stuff. The juiciness. The juiciness. Well, Everyone, thank you for listening. We do have a website. As December has said, it is slightly two years out of date. Um, <laughs> so, slightly so two years. Up, I, I I swear, I looked at the word behind. I, I looked at the back office on WordPress, and I was like, "No, nah, I'm not touching this." Um, so it will be fixed eventually. But Keith is going to tell you how you can help us uh, fund such a project in just a moment here. But we do have a website, HereticHappyHour.com. There is merch there if you want to pick up some swag. Um, just don't go looking for new episodes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can find those on your favorite podcast. That's yes, right. Yes, Apple, right. Platform, Apple. Wherever you're listening yeah. right now. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, when when you do that, um, we would love, 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 love for you to join us on our Facebook group. It's totally free. It's for heretics in all phases of D and reconstruction. It's called Heresy After Hours. Um, just come join us. Search it into the search 
type it into the search bar of Facebook. You'll find us right away, Heresy After Hours. Yes, and if you would like to help us, um, if you'd like to join the pledge drive to help us um, <laughs> update our, our woefully uh, old ancient heretichappyhour.com website, um, you can do that by joining us on Patreon and go to patreon.com slash hour. Um, become a patron of your favorite podcast. You will unlock just uh, just a gazillion different uh, amazing bonus things we record, extra stuff we put up there just for you guys to say thank you. And you'll get access to our exclusive private Facebook group for Heretic Happy Hour podcast. Um, and you'll be helping us uh, kind of one day, we hope, fingers crossed, we can raise enough money. Oh, look at me. Go to the tote board. And let's see. Well, right now <laughs> we need a lot more money. So please help us out to do that. And you will, um, will bless your socks off in the process. And you all, I just got some secret knowledge. Like, yeah, Enoch was whispering in my ear and said, today is the day that the person listening to this podcast right now is going to go and rate and review Heretic Happy Hour on iTunes or whatever platform they're listening on. And if it is secret wisdom from Enoch, it must be true. So today is the day you should definitely go rate and review us. It's how people like you find people like us. It makes such a difference in helping folks connect to this show. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. <laughs> hallelujah. Do the Gnostics say hallelujah? I don't remember. I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> I feel too excited, but that's maybe just me. They don't say it during lunch. <laughs> they definitely don't say it during lunch. Oh, I just screwed up. <laughs>